one of the things that I think it's really important for every single company and organization to start doing is to actually turn that flashlight around to look at, okay, where are the systemic and structural barriers within our own organization? And then where are the ones that we present uh, externally for people uh, trying to access our systems? Hello, and welcome to our podcast series on future skills. I'm your host, Jamie Nordstrand. For years, technological advancements, climate change, and new business models have been transforming workplaces all over the world. The pandemic has simply accelerated those changes. Employers, workers, and job seekers are evolving and embracing the extraordinary opportunities that are redefining the future of Canada's labor force. On today's podcast, we'll hear from Future Skills Council members, Mike Luff and Lisa Langevin, as well as Angela McEwen, the senior economist with the Canadian Union of Public Employees. Together, they discuss barriers to employment and skills development in Canada, with a special focus on helping underrepresented groups. They also look at ways to ensure that all Canadians can pursue lifelong learning. Hello, everyone. My name is Mike Luff. I'm a member of the Future Skills Council, and I am a representative of the Canadian Labour Congress, which represents 3.3 million workers in Canada. I'm happy to be joined today by Lisa Langevin. Lisa is a member of the Future Skills Council as well, and she is the Director of Equity and Engagement at the Industry Training Authority of British Columbia. And with us today is a special guest, Angela McEwen. Angela is a senior economist with the Canadian Union of Public Employees, which is the largest trade union in Canada. Today, we're going to be talking about the Future Skills Council's report. More specifically, we're going to be talking about priority number two in the report, and that priority is called Equality of Opportunity for Lifelong Learning. So fasten your seatbelts. Today's discussion is going to zip around from subjects such as supporting underrepresented groups to helping mid-career workers upgrade their skills. So Lisa, can you tell us who are we talking about when we refer to underrepresented groups and their need for more opportunities for skills development? Generally, um, when we talk about underrepresented groups, we're talking about uh, in certain sectors, uh, there are groups that are much more underrepresented. And those sectors tend to be the high paying, uh, great careers. So it, even when we talk about um, on boards across Canada, we know uh, when we talk about underrepresented, we're talking about women. We're talking about uh, uh, IBPOC, Indigenous, Black, uh, and people of color. Uh, we're talking about immigrants, people with disabilities, uh, and uh, youth as well. Youth have been highly affected by uh, by COVID, and uh, um, and too often there are barriers for youth uh, in certain sectors as well. When we think about all of these uh, groups, which were already underrepresented in the labor market before the pandemic, we know now as we start to emerge from the pandemic and look at a recovery that these groups uh, are facing even more barriers than ever. And uh, Angela, maybe you could shed some light. What, what are some of the systemic and structural barriers facing these underrepresented groups? Well, one of the problems that you talked about is that lots of times underrepresented groups get um, shuffled into low-wage jobs without good labor protections. And so it can be really difficult when you're kind of working two jobs to get as much um, money as you can to kind of support your family or yourself 
to have the time or the resources uh, to be able to go back to school, to upgrade your skills, to get a better job, right? So barriers can be a lack of access to childcare. Uh, if you've got little kids, it can be really expensive <laughs> to find childcare. So if you're going back to school um, and and you, you can't find affordable childcare, that's a huge barrier. Uh, if you uh, don't have a car and the maybe there isn't really good bus service out to the school that you want to go to, so it's going to take you a long time to get there. Um, that tra so transportation is a huge barrier. Um, if you live in a rural or a remote remote area, um, internet access is going to be a problem, as we've seen throughout the pandemic, for people trying to even access online learning. And then for, for people with disabilities, um, maybe the learning isn't delivered in a way that's accessible. So maybe there aren't audio files for people to listen to the text rather than books to read, right? So have we done a good job thinking about what the different barriers are to people and kind of adjusting to make it more accessible to them? Angela has listed so many of the, uh, of the very uh, salient ones, um, but but some of the systemic and structural barriers that we don't talk about enough are actually racism, misogyny, and blatant discrimination. And, and those are things that, you know, like we like to think that, that the barriers are kind of outside of ourselves and outside of our organizations. Uh, so it's, it's not us. It's, well, daycare is hard or financial barriers are hard. It's all things outside of us. But one of the things that I think it's really important for every single company and organization to start doing is to actually turn that flashlight around to look at, okay, where are the systemic and structural barriers within our own organization? And then where are the ones that we present uh, externally for people uh, trying to access our systems? For sure. And it can be really simple, right? Yeah. I have worked in traditionally male industries and sometimes it's as simple as access to a bathroom. Yeah, right. Yes. Totally. There was, you had to walk through the men's locker room to get to, you know, sort of a makeshift bathroom that was set up. And the, that's just not a very welcoming environment, first of all. And if you're, you're getting teased while you're doing it, um, even if you get the job, once you get the job, you're, you're not likely to stay for very long um, when that type of environment exists. Yeah. It's, I mean, You've both touched on some really important um, barriers from marginalization and systemic discrimination and racism to practical barriers. Um, and I know you both have a lot of experience firsthand in occupations and sectors that are traditionally male dominated. Um, one of the barriers I often think about is a cultural barrier. So not just the culture of a specific workplace, but the culture of an entire industry or sector that needs to change. And and I wondered if, Lisa, Angela, if you could touch on that, the need for a culture change in industries and sectors. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things that, that we see in the trades. As you know, Mike, I'm a Red Seal electrician. And uh, we've definitely seen in trades and, you know, and in other industries like tech, um, we've seen a need for cultural changes because it the culture itself uh, excludes certain people. And certainly, uh, when I moved into the trades, I was shocked at the blatant racism uh, that was allowed at the lunchroom table. So I think you're right, Mike. Uh, looking at that culture is one of the things that we need to change. And, and in BC, we're lucky. Uh, we've partnered with 
the Ending Violence Association of BC and the BC Lions with their program called Be More Than a Bystander. And we've modified it for construction to start addressing those really ingrained systemic issues that we often don't even talk about. And it's time that we start not only talking about them, but start doing things to address them. We know reducing these barriers and increasing underrepresented groups in the labor market is the right thing to do, obviously. But it's also, I think, the smart thing to do economically when our workplaces and our economy are more diverse and inclusive. So we know, first of all, that workplaces that are more inclusive tend to do better because the employers are getting insights from the the different types of employees that they work with that enable them to meet the needs of their clients better, right? So they tend to become more successful because they're thinking about things that just wouldn't necessarily occur to them otherwise, because it never comes up in their life. Like if you're, if you're, uh, if you never use a wheelchair, you might not notice how uh, hard it would be to get into your building (laughs) if you do, right? So, so you may be, um, excluding clients with because you haven't thought about the different things, um, the different barriers that your clients might be experiencing. Um, and so that's true. But it's also true that um, when we all do better, there's lots of people with disabilities who don't get enough work. And so there's a whole category of people that exist that feel excluded from society that are essentially you know in, in a lot of ways excluded from society or people that are are racialized or new immigrants or indigenous people or women and so that creates social problems as well as economic problems and um and that type of poverty and uh exclusion is transmitted to the next generation so in canada we're seeing a huge, huge change, a huge shift um, where intergenerational transmission of equality is getting worse. And so uh, we want to break that barrier. We want to grow to be more equal because we're more prosperous when we all have that opportunity. Um, And types of interventions like this are one of the key ways that we can do that. And didn't COVID just highlight uh, what you're talking about, Angela? Yeah. Like we saw that, you know, people in uh, in the positions that paid the most uh, had the least disruption to their wages, where the lowest uh, paid people uh, tended to lose the most wages and, and were also at the most risk when they did go to work. Exactly. And they had the fewest labor protections. So they were least likely to have paid sick leave. Yeah. They were least likely to have um, medicines or, or health uh, benefits through their work. And so what we really see, and this translates to training as well. So the people with the highest wages and the most education and the best jobs also tend to pick up most of the training benefits that are out there as well. Totally. And so we really have to think about structuring it in a way that isn't just, you know, helping me as a a high wage office worker take some extra French classes, right? We need to think about it in a way as how do we break down these systemic barriers and use it to um, help people get out of these jobs. They're not paid fair wages. They don't have reliable scheduling. um, They don't have the benefits that we have. And so we both need to recognize, I think, that those workers should be better paid, should have more protections. Um, 
but also they should have access to opportunities to get uh, even better jobs if they want that. I think this is a broader um, conversation about the common good um, that governments need to uh, take into account. Um, the governments have a natural responsibility to take care of. Um, I've worked with you know, many adults who just didn't have the level of literacy and essential skills they needed uh, to get any job. But once they had those skills and they, and they got the job, it, it became um, fulfilling in the sense that they went to work and were productive. But um, what they talk more about is how they became more active in, and engaged as citizens in their workplaces yes. and communities and in their family life as well, being able to read to their grandchildren, etc. So I, I just wanted to make that point that what we're doing um, and what government has a, a larger responsibility and role around is is this common good around skills development and everyone, and in particular, underrepresented groups. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm glad you brought up skills development. And, you know, you talked about one specific aspect, but uh, skills development across the board is, is one of the things that I remain passionate about. Because when we talk about underrepresented groups in certain sectors, uh, I think it's essential, like even um, like if we look in uh, hospitals, uh, the lowest paid jobs are filled by racialized people and the highest paid jobs are filled by, you know, generally white men. Um, And how are we going to address that? Well, one of the simple ways to address that is just to start by making those soft skills, which all employers across the board say are so important, make those soft skills more available and things like public speaking courses aren't challenging to put on, aren't costly to put on, but have a huge impact on people's career uh, choices and abilities. So I, I agree, Mike, when we talk about uh, skills training, it goes across the board from, you know, starting with literacy uh, on up to the, the softer skills of managing people or public speaking or, or those types of skills, which should be made more available and uh, more financially feasible for underrepresented groups to attend. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of stigma around this. So I grew up in a, a rural area where lots of people kind of had to quit school early in order to work, to like take care of the family farm or take care of a, a relative that, that was ill. And so that really affected their confidence. Uh, and and I, I think if we talk about it differently, how we can all benefit from continuous personal development and and that this is something that affects all of your life, not just your job or your employer, that it will have more of a positive uh, spin on it. Yeah. And with those soft skills uh, in BC, one of the things that we did uh, for tradeswomen is we provided those soft skills. We did, uh, we called it leadership training. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so calling it leadership training made Mm. it, made it more accessible and more, uh, you know, uh, people were more willing to sign up for it. And when we started the training, there was only one union, uh, a trade union in BC that had a tradeswoman working at the union. And today, almost every union in BC has a tradeswoman working for them. And all of those tradeswomen are women who have gone through one of the leadership courses that we put on. 
and to see, you know, these women move up into leadership positions. The one union that, that did have a tradeswoman working for them, oddly enough, has the highest percentage of tradeswomen probably actually in North America at this point. Um, but what we see is as, as underrepresented groups move into leadership, underrepresented groups increase in those workplaces or in those organizations or unions. And so it's so important that we provide those lifelong skills and not just the entry skills. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it brings me to uh, another question I had, and that is something we've been touching on a little bit already, but that is, um, what are the solutions that are needed to address some of the barriers we've talked about? And I'm going to limit all of us to just one solution. So <laughs> think think for 10 seconds what, oh, what you hard. think might be the best solution. If you had a magic wand and could wave it today and get one solution. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to say free post-secondary education. I know there are lots and lots of people that uh, are able to take out student loans and then they, it takes them, you know, years and years and years to repay them. But tuition is getting even more expensive. And for, um, especially I think for underrepresented groups where there are other barriers, like maybe their family had never worked in that industry before. And so they don't really um, have the confidence that it's going to work out or they don't know how the industry works to be able to be sure that they're going to get a job um, to take on a bunch of debt uh, to then, you know, kind of take a chance at the industry, I think uh, is, is a huge barrier. Um, and I, I think that it also limits people tend to then focus on these micro credentials because they're like, okay, I can spend a little bit less money, get something that's more sure. I know that there's a job there. Rather than getting the broad skill set that they need, um, spending the time to get the whole four-year um, carpentry or electrician or whatever it is that you're doing, that then also gives you the broad skill set that you will need to transition as the workforce changes and as the workplaces change. And so that, I think, is something that we need to be thinking about as well, both through just transition and climate change, but also automation and as what we need in our society changes, we're going to need a lot more, for example, personal support workers. We need a lot more educational assistance. Um, and those are very important jobs. And we need to make sure that there's lots of people out there that have the skills to do those jobs. And, and one way we can do that is by making the tuition free. <laughs> I love it. Great, great suggestion, idea. Lisa. Great idea. Uh, so mine is actually um, it goes back to one of the first things that we started with. Uh, one of the first recommendations with the report really is, is about data. Uh, so there is currently a lot of government funding available for a wide variety of projects and programs, which is great. Uh, one of the things that the Government of Canada uh, looked at was uh, boards, for instance, uh, and looking at making sure that boards were representative, because we know right now in Canada, only about 18% of women uh, of board positions are taken by women. And that needs to change. So if we have a company putting in a proposal for the um, 
Future Skills Center or for UTIP money. Uh, let's look at the board. And if the proposal is around underrepresented groups, but the board is all white men, is that really the group that we want to be giving the money to? Yeah, that's a good question. And that actually leads to what my um, solution on offer is today. And that is, I, I think we as a country need to do a much better job of um, income support for people when they do want to pursue skills development. So that question about who who's going to pay for it, um, you know, a lot of people are are enthusiastic about upgrading skills and and training, but they just can't afford to do it. Um, you know, as both you and Angela have have described. And then when it comes to underrepresented groups, we know they're disproportionately um, amongst lower income occupations and sectors, we need to remove financial barriers up front, like uh, Angela was describing in terms of free tuition. Um, I'm sure you've both um, experienced that where you've met people who would love to take more skills upgrading, but just can't afford to. So uh, one of the things that um, that I've noticed over the years, there used to be a lot of um, the soft skill type uh programs available through school districts at night. And largely in BC, those have been cut to the point where they don't exist anymore. And so you're right, Mike, it, especially if, you know, cheap accessible night courses are cut like that, then all that's available is for people to have to leave their job to do uh, upskilling, which for many people is, is not a possibility. They can't take the cut and pay to be able to go to school full time. Uh, so one of the simple solutions to me would be for governments to make sure that they're, that they're helping support and fund those night school courses in, around school districts uh, across the country again. Yeah, I think that's really important. And um, one of the things that come to mind for me is um, the need for a job protected leave from your workplace to pursue training. So, um, you know, if if we did more to improve income support and and reduce the financial barriers, and um, and people had more information about what type of training and skills they should take, I still think there's this huge barrier we talked about earlier where people aren't necessarily confident about going to their employer and saying, hey, I'd like to take um, a month off work so I can go take a course at the local college, or I'd like to really pursue a three-month um, uh, course in, in this or training in this skills. Um, but if governments, and this is actually in the Future Skills Council report as a, a key recommendation, if the federal and provincial governments work together to amend their labor codes, like we've done in so many other ways to provide job-protected leaves for training, I think that would go a long way to in increasing uptake um, so that workers could, could, could simply say to their employer, I'm, hey, I'm entitled to training and upgrading my skills, and I'll be using my training leave this year. Thank you. I, I think that makes sense. And I think that um, often employers do recognize that it's useful for them to have uh, employees who are interested in, in lifelong learning, and, and some employers do more work on this than others. But overall, um, the Canadian ecosystem is not good on this front, right? When you compare us with other rich countries, 
Uh, we don't really have um, that type of, uh, of culture in Canada for employers to be doing that. Yeah, and I think one of the other ideas that comes to mind for me is, is uh, sector-wide approaches. So, you know, often we hear from employers, well, I don't want my employees to upgrade their skills. They'll just get poached by another employer and I'll lose them. So why would I invest in that? Why would I let them do that when they just leave for someone else? But we've seen examples in some spe- specific sectors. For instance, the hospitality and hotel industry in Toronto has come together as an entire sector to address the whole um, labor needs for the labor needs for that whole sector in an entire geographical region of Toronto. And often, you know, I hear. Um people talk about other models of apprenticeship, uh, like the German model. So built into the German model is that corporations actually pay for the training. It's not up to government. It's not up to individuals. The company pays for it. And as soon as you talk about that kind of corporate responsibility, a lot of people start to back off of of talking about you know really successful models like the German model. And I, I do think culturally, it's one of the things that we need to build in into our system more in Canada is more uh, corporate and cultural uh, company responsibility for training. Um, it, asking to let people go, I think, is the absolute minimum that we could ask for. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, and Mike, your, both of your solutions there, the paid leave and the sector approach, overcome this problem because it's it's something that economists call um, like a, a many actor problem right you if you're the only one in a in a sector doing the right thing you're bearing the whole cost of doing it but other people are actually free riding on you and they're getting some of the benefit yeah and Lisa talked about the German model but there's actually a model right here in Canada that's very similar and that is in Quebec uh, Quebec has an um, by law has an employer mandatory contribution to training so if you have a payroll over a certain threshold you're expected to invest whatever it is one or two percent of your uh, revenue back into training for your employees and if you don't then you have to contribute that same amount financially into a central pool which um, is governed by uh, labor market stakeholders who decide uh, what um, types of training uh, should be available and who should who can access it. So it's kind of a pay or play model, which um, exists in one province in Canada and is worth uh, looking at for, for other provinces as well, I think. And then, of course, um, as Lisa had alluded to, um, unions uh, al- almost, no matter what industry or sector, public, private, construction, industrial, um, have... Um, negotiated uh, employer contributions to training and in many cases unions now are running very um, impressive first-class training centers um, and they are recruiting underrepresented people to these union training centers Um, and uh, these uh, training centers are tied directly to what employers are demanding uh, as needs in the in the current labor market. Yeah, and the the great thing about that model really is that uh, it's not, um, the training centers aren't union run and they're not employer run. It's, uh, Mm. they're made up of committees of the employers and the unions sitting together 
figuring out what's best for um, training for their sector. And so, so both are contributing uh, and it, it really is a, a wonderful model. Yeah. And I, th- I, I think, um, yeah, just it, it, it highlights that we do need much broader um, comprehensive approaches and models uh, to, to, to address these challenges. And also um, I think what you described, Lisa, is important in terms of no single stakeholder on their own can solve these problems. That much like the Future Skills Council, we need to uh, bring stakeholders together um, for more dialogue, more collaboration, more partnerships. Um, It's not helpful if um, there's a focus on only the education sector or only employers. Uh, for instance, um, we need everyone to come together um, and 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 row in the same direction, as as the saying goes. And we need that happening more and more on a geographical basis and on a sectoral level, I think, as well. Any last thoughts? Any last things you wanted to add, Lisa and Angela, to today's uh, theme? I think one of the most important things for me, Mike, around um, this topic really is that. Um, around equality of opportunity for lifelong learning, as we identified at the council over and over and over. This is not government's responsibility. It's also not just the individual's responsibility. It is unions, corporations, companies, uh, government, individuals, workers, everyone working together to make sure that, um, that there is equality uh, and that we are focused on lifelong learning so that, you know, no one is left out in the dark. You know, and honestly, I, I felt so um, hopeful listening to the federal budget uh, when they mentioned so many of the issues of underrepresented groups. It, um, it, it really did address uh, many of the things that we had talked about in, in the report. Uh, but the budget, you know, made me made me feel very uh, grateful that it, it felt like the uh, the report and our recommendations were listened to. Yeah, and I appreciate that um, as well. And it's nice to end our conversation today on a note of optimism um, and uh, a plea for even more action from uh, stakeholders in this area. So I just want to say thanks to both Lisa and Angela for uh, this amazing conversation today. It's been great chatting with both of you about underrepresented groups, marginalized people, um, employed workers who also need to upgrade their skills. To all the listeners out there, we say bye for now, but please, let's keep this conversation going. Let's Talk Future Skills is a production of Employment and Social Development Canada. All opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the individual and not necessarily that of their employer or ESDC. For more information on Future Skills or to read the Council's full report, which includes a more in-depth perspective on equality of opportunity for lifelong learning, visit canada.ca forward slash future skills. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and click the notification tab so you know when the next one is released. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk Future Skills.